introduced yet. My name is Dave Werns. I'm the Director of Missions and Mobilization here at Grace Fellowship Church. That is my primary job, but this morning I also have the pleasure of opening up God's Word with you as we take a brief detour away from the series. We've been going through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to dive in over the summer in one of my personal, absolute favorite Old Testament books of the Bible, the book of Esther. You'll have to forgive me, my voice is a little dry today, so we've got uh, uh, a little preventative maintenance going on. We'll get to that also in a bit. I know summer schedules can be a little bit crazy, uh, and maybe you're not as excited about the Old Testament as I am, but I promise you, you do not want to sleep on this series. The book of Esther deals with some of the most timely and timeless, maybe even some of the most gnarly pieces of doctrine in the entire Bible. I'm, I'm talking about things like living out your faith in the middle of a pagan empire, or, or how to be a faithful follower of Jesus under a foolish and wicked ruler. What about something like self-defense and vengeance? Right? What about fasting? What about Christian celebration? Of course, God's sovereignty mixed in with our responsibility and how those work together to accomplish God's purposes. Folks, I am super excited to be going through this with you all. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Before we get too far down that road, I think it would be helpful for most of us if we zoom out just a little bit, get some context about where this story fits into the scope of human history, and more specifically, where do these characters fit in God's story of redeeming his people throughout the ages in the Bible. So this might be a little bit of review for some of you if you grew up in in Sunday school with the flannel graph, right? You might remember some of this. For those of you that maybe didn't grow up in church, this might be brand new to you. So I want to emphasize, we're about to do an overview. Just hit some of the highlights. You definitely want to do some digging on your own into the Old Testament histories so you personally can understand where God's going and what he's up to. Regardless of where you are, I'm going to be moving pretty quick, so buckle up. In Genesis, that's the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis, we see God creating our universe out of his own will and creativity. And one of the last things that our God creates for himself is a people group, a unique people, a a family that was grown out of one faithful man named Abraham. And it it formed out of 12 distinct tribes that came from his 12 great-grandsons. Those tribes eventually form into a single kingdom where they enjoy God's blessing, his presence, through three consecutive kings. And and the highlight of Hebrew history really comes at that third king, King Solomon, where he completes the construction of God's temple in Jerusalem. That temple represents the heartbeat of Jewish culture and religion. Unfortunately, the kingdom doesn't survive King Solomon's death Instead, civil war breaks out, and and the kingdom is divided into two unequal kingdoms. 
The southern kingdom is called Judah. It's the kingdom of Judah, and it has two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And the northern kingdom basically has everybody else, and it's called Israel. Things go from bad to worse after the war. There's a lot of sin on both sides, right? And eventually, both kingdoms are conquered by separate pagan empires. Israel in the north is taken captive by the Assyrians, and Judah in the, in the south, they're taken captive by the Babylonians. That basically gets us all the way from Genesis to Second Chronicles with most of the prophetic books thrown in there. So that's, that's a crash course on Hebrew history. It's important to note that southern kingdom, the capital city was Jerusalem. And so the temple, right, that heartbeat of Jewish culture and religion was in the southern kingdom. And so that means the prophecies about the coming Messiah is necessarily attached to that southern kingdom of Judah. And so that's why we really don't hear much of anything about the northern kingdoms once they get conquered by the Assyrians. They kind of disappear. All the attention gets focused on tracking with those Jews who were captive by the Babylonians first, then the, and then the Persians, as we'll see, from that southern kingdom. And that sets the stage for Esther. That's where we are in Esther. The, the Jews are a conquered, scattered people. The temple has been looted and, and destroyed. Ten of those 12 tribes have basically been dissolved. And the other two tribes are on the verge of being assimilated into a pagan, wicked culture. Even though the Jews are in exile, there is a glimmer of hope. God never leaves his people completely hopeless. This thread of hope that their whole civilization hangs on is a Persian king who has allowed a small group of Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild that temple, the heartbeat of culture and religion. This is the, this is the little tiny thread of hope that every Jew is pinning their culture on. And that story is told in the book of Ezra in great detail. We really don't have time to go far down that road. But I mention it because tucked inside that story of rebuilding the temple, specifically tucked in between chapter, Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, is a window. It's a time gap. And in that time gap, God reveals himself to the world in a very unique way through the life of an orphaned, exiled Jewish girl that we have come to know as Esther. If you would, pray with me as I ask God to help us understand and apply that revelation to our lives today. Father God, we love you. We love that you are a God of history, that you have a reputation built on character and promises, attributes and qualities that you have shown throughout centuries of documented activities. God, thank you for the documentation of your faithfulness. Would you help us trust in that documentation? Would you help us apply what we have learned about you to our lives today, even as we open your word and hear from you this morning? We love you. Amen. I said God's revelation through Esther is unique. Frankly, I think that's a little bit of an underestimated uh, statement, right? That's, that's sort of an understatement. The, the book of Esther is unique in the Bible. There's nothing even remotely close to it. It's one of two books that's named after a woman. So 
that right away is, is a little bit strange. Ruth is the other book that was named after a woman, and she's a direct ancestor of King David and thus King Jesus. And so it kind of makes sense that she gets her own scene. Esther's not mentioned anywhere else. So that's a little odd. Even more strange, the book of Esther is one of, if not the most, secular books in the entire Bible. And when I say secular, right, what I really mean is there is an almost awkward avoidance of any religious language throughout the telling of this story. Nobody mentions prayer. Nobody mentions the temple, that heartbeat of religion. Nobody talks about the sacrifices or the the celebrations, no feasts. There's no prophecy. There's no return to the promised land. As odd as that sounds, there is a more noticeable absence throughout this story. Probably the most glaring omission that some of you might already be familiar with, there is no reference to God. It's weird. He's not named. He's not addressed. He's not referenced one single time in the entire story of Esther. The silence is... deafening. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. But friends, we must not equate God's silence with his absence. I'm going to say that again. If you hear nothing else that I say for the rest of the morning, please hear this. We cannot afford to assume God's silence is evidence of his absence. We can't do it in Esther. We can't do it in our own lives. Folks, he is regularly, often silent in our lives, but he is never, never absent. Our God is with us. And over the next few weeks, I expect that we're going to see that even though he is noticeably silent in the book of Esther, he is obviously at work. He is obviously working to reveal his character, to fulfill his promises, to redeem his people. And right out of the gate here in Esther chapter 1. Turn there with me if you haven't already. Esther chapter 1. Use the, uh, what, the table of contents if you have to. There's no shame. Right here in Esther chapter 1, God starts out the story by addressing one of the most fundamental questions to all of human existence. It is a question that every person has to wrestle with at some point in his or her life. Question is, who is really in charge here? Who's calling the shots? Who's steering this ship? Who's the boss? People have been asking this question since Genesis chapter 2, which basically means we've been asking it since there have been people. Who is in control is a foundational question that, frankly, in a room this size, I'm sure some of us walked into the room asking that question. Right? Maybe here in Florence, maybe at Fort Thomas or Independence. We are still asking, who's in charge here? Opinions have varied across time and culture, right? There's no one consensus across all humanity. But by the time we get to Esther chapter 1, there is at least one person who has decided 
that the king of Persia is the man in charge. Of course, that one person is the current king of Persia, King Ahasuerus, right? If you'd follow along in verse 1, Esther 1 says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 120 provinces, that Ahasuerus, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants, The army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. King Ahasuerus seems quite confident. He's the man in charge. It's not without reason, right? He does have some reason. He is the most important man in the largest, most powerful empire that the world had seen up until that point. When he sat on the throne, the Persian Empire spanned three continents. It stretched from modern-day India all the way across Asia, down into North Africa, up into the Balkans of Europe. It had parts of Ukraine, parts of Romania. There were a ton, literal millions of people who were in his empire. Picture this. Kings. You had kings, literal men who ruled over other people. They would travel for months just for the honor of kneeling down in front of King Ahasuerus and offering him gifts. So yeah, if there was ever a guy who had the right to say, I'm the man, it's probably King Ahasuerus. And while he is a fairly important political and and cultural figure throughout history, some of your Bibles might have him as his Greek name, Xerxes. Does that sound familiar? This is the guy who tried to conquer Greece. In many ways, he shaped the course of human history through his actions. But the author of Esther actually paints him in a different light. It's somewhat of a political parody. He's a caricature of all the foolish and wicked leaders ruling the world during this period. He's poking fun at the wicked and unrighteous leaders of the world. This six-month-long, it's 180 days, six-month-long flex to show the, the riches of his royal glory, right? the splendor and pomp of his greatness. To us, that might just seem like weird rich people doing weird rich people stuff. To the original readers, it would have been extreme to the point of comedy. This is their version of an SNL sketch. Okay, he might as well have been trying to do uh, Will Ferrell pulling off a, a fake Texas accent in a wig. Right? This, is, this is their idea of high comedy. Especially when we get down to the second feast, down to verse 5. How long in verse 5? So in these days, that's the 180 days of party. So when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast. Feast number 2. Lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, silver rods and marble pillars, also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic of pavement with papyri. I don't know what that is. Marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the drinking was according to the lavish, lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. 
They have to have rules for having fun. For the king was given orders to his palace staff, saying, Do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, I know some of the cultural humor probably doesn't translate well. But I think all of us can probably picture a guy who's trying just a little too hard. Right? You know somebody that has just a little bit something to prove to the world. But I guarantee, I'm willing to bet, whoever you're thinking of, please don't show them, don't point them out. Whoever you're thinking of probably at least tries on some level to hide the fact that he's got something to prove, right? Of course he needs a truck that big. He's got to tow the boat. That King Ahasuerus is on a whole nother level, okay? He's not even trying to pretend that his six-month-long house parties have anything to do with feeding the poor, have anything to do with celebrating the collective accomplishments of his empire. That this has anything to do with even saying thank you to his generals and his, his governors. Now, all of the extravagance is motivated by one fundamental desire. King Ahasuerus wants to make sure everybody in the empire knows exactly what he himself has already been convinced of. Right? He is the greatest, richest, most powerful man on the planet. He's the man in charge. Folks, I, I don't think God gave us this, this clownish description of wasteful arrogance just to poke fun at the rich and powerful. I think he's drawing attention to the foolishness, the absurdity of arrogant pride. I think he's pointing out how insane entitlement and self-focus are. But these are things that aren't just for rich people, folks. These are, these are human conditions. Pride, arrogance, self-focus, entitlement. He's talking about us. We are the joke here. Now, we may not have golden couches or silver curtain rods. We might not have enough cash on hand to do an open bar party for the whole neighborhood, let alone the city. But every one of us feels the temptation to strut around our little empire as if we're in control. I say empire. That could just be your home. That could be your job. That could be your school. Your online network, it could just be in your head. Wherever you believe you are the one in charge. Friends, there is a temptation to make sure everybody else knows. King Ahasuerus might have been acting this out in front of a live audience of thousands. But we're doing it just as deliberately if maybe with a touch more subtlety, at one time or another, we are all arrogant fools before God. If we can, let's just be real about that for a minute, okay? 
we all say we struggle with pride. I don't know anybody that's, that's going to fight on that. But I can't help but think as I read through this chapter, maybe, just maybe, we don't take that fight quite as seriously as God does. Would you leave a finger in Esther? Would you turn with me down to 1 John? It's all the way in the back of the book, 1 John. If you get to Revelation, take a quick left. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1 verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Friends, we all know we sin. We all know everyone else sins. We all know everyone else knows that we sin. Even more than that, we know sin is terrible. It's destructive. It's aggressive. It will kill you if you give it half a chance. But at the end of the day, it's just sin. Especially for the people who believe in the powerful work and the finished work of Christ Jesus on the cross. Friends, we know what to do with sin. Look down at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he, this, this is God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin is terrible. It is terminal, but it has a solution. We talk to God about our sin. We agree with God about our sin. And God forgives us, cleanses us, based on the atoning death of Christ Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then chapter 2 says we get right back to the real work of making sure everyone in the world knows God accurately and loves God appropriately. Friends, we lather, rinse, and repeat as necessary. But from the tone of 1 John and James chapter 5 and Psalm 32, so many other places I get the impression that this confession, forgiveness, cleansing cycle, it's a lot more like daily personal hygiene than an annual checkup. I especially see the need for this kind of routine maintenance when it comes to stuff like pride, self-sufficiency. The arrogant foolishness of thinking I am the one that's in charge. I don't know about you. I feel an almost constant desire to prove to the world that I am in control. That I am in charge of my life and I am making it work. I especially want to prove it to myself. 
It'd be great if you all believed it, but really, I just want to prove it to me. And if I'm honest, I think that the root of that desire is this little belief that I still have that I deserve to be God. That on some level, I still believe that I would be doing a better job than God. I'm better than he is. That's not the overriding belief of my life, but it's there. And that belief colors so many of my decisions. It it, it colors how I spend my time, how I spend my money, what I stress out about, right? What I procrastinate about, what I hide, what I, what I share on social media, what, I, what I'm afraid of, and what I celebrate. It colors how I treat my coworkers, how I treat my neighbors, how I treat my wife, my daughter, how I treat God. It's gross. It's embarrassing. It's sin. But like we saw in 1 John 1, 9, we know what to do with sin. Right? It's not inoperable brain cancer. This is somebody that's, that's drowning and needs CPR. This is fixable. God has given us his forgiveness through the blood of his son. We confess, we're forgiven, we're cleansed, and we get back to work. I'm not bringing this up to make light of sin. Quite the opposite, actually. I'm I'm talking about this so we bring sin out into the light. We don't have to hide, friends. We get to confess, be forgiven, and be cleansed. I'm talking about the arrogant belief that I deserve to be in charge as sin, because if we are not consistently confessing and being forgiven and being cleansed, friends, we will inevitably end up trapped on this hamster wheel of self-deception where we are simultaneously convinced that we actually are in control. But at the same time, having this insatiable need to keep affirming that we are in control. Friends, it is a trap. I would love to give us all just a minute to quietly reflect, maybe confess and be cleansed. But since we're celebrating communion in a few minutes, I think God has already provided some time for that. And I think there are a few more points in Esther that are worth looking at. So if you would, turn back to Esther with me. Esther chapter 1. Personally, I don't think we should be so surprised that we are easily convinced that we are the ones in charge. We want so badly for that to be true. We'll believe it based on virtually no evidence at all. But we don't stay convinced. We don't stay convinced very long. We need to keep affirming ourselves that we are actually in charge because reality just keeps proving otherwise. King Ahasuerus is no exception. 
Look down at verse 10. After, after 187 days of, of consecutive flaunting of his wealth and power in every imaginable way, he pulls out one more trophy to parade around. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zether, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who serve in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused. With those four little words, all of the, the royal glory, all the, the splendor and the pomp, right? all the wine, the food, the excess, the showmanship, all of it gets flushed right down the tube. Just when King Ahasuerus thought that he had finally settled the matter once and for all, everybody knows who's in charge. That same old question pops right back into thousands of minds in an instant. Who's really in charge here? Historians have a a number of theories about why Queen Vashti refused We don't really know, and and it really doesn't matter. What really matters is the fact that that the resulting chaos that ripples across the empire only serves to prove that even even the most powerful man in the most comprehensive empire the world had ever seen is not nearly as in control as he thinks. The last ten verses of this chapter show the the wheels are really starting to come off the the king's little party bus. Right As soon as the queen refuses, the man who's supposed to be in charge starts looking around, asking, what do we do? do What's the protocol for, for a queen that refuses the king? How do we deal with this? And his eunuchs have no clue at all. But they can't say that to King Ahasuerus. And so, so they default to the worst possible doomsday scenario they can think of. Or they start accusing the queen of high crimes against the empire. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. She's done this to everyone. And so all of a sudden, it's not just a king and queen problem. It's a husband-wife problem. And they, they, they promise the king, if you don't do something immediately, word's going to get out. And by tomorrow, every woman in the empire is going to loathe and despise her husband. Look down at verse 18. Verse 18 says, There will be contempt and wrath in plenty. That's code for your empire is going to tear itself apart. The fabric of our society is being ripped to shreds. We are doomed. Our only hope is a new law. I hope you guys see the trap that they fell into. They are so convinced that they are in control because they want so badly 
to be their own gods. But as evidence of of their lack of control piles up, they have to keep making new laws, new plans to prove to themselves just how control, how much control they actually have. Does that sound familiar? I do that. That was my morning this morning. I woke up an hour late. First thing I start doing is barking orders. Why? Because I feel so out of control. I have to get my handles on this. I have to get it back into proper order. Do what I want. Two-year-old. My poor dog. It's the only one I can actually yell at. Has even less effect. I'm getting off the script. Okay. You almost feel bad for these guys. They have no clue what they're doing. And their plan is so pitiful. Right? It's a three-step process. One, we're going to tell that woman who refused to come that she's never allowed to come back again. That'll show her. And then we're going to make sure everybody in the empire knows exactly what she did and that she's being replaced by somebody who knows how to do her job. Take that. Last step. This will really get them. We're going to decree an empirical law that every man is in charge of his own household. Crisis averted. You're welcome. The intended effect of this law was for every woman across three continents to do as they're told. I'm not a marriage expert. I'm not sure that's going to go quite the way they planned. We'll see. Cliffhanger. Who knows? What I am sure about is regardless of their intentions, regardless of their desires, these men are obviously not the ones who are ultimately in control. I think we're going to see in the coming chapters that everything is working exactly according to plan. The parties, the refusal, the eunuchs, the edict, all of it is going exactly according to plan. Just not their plan. This question of who is really in charge here, it is so foundational to life, especially a Christian life. We're going to be touching on it over and over again as we go through the book of Esther. Around here, we like to say that God has a lock on things. Right? That he limits, he orders, he controls, and he knows all things. It's helpful. It has been so helpful in so many lives. But I know from personal experience, I grew up in this church. I know from personal experience how easily somebody can agree with the doctrine of God's divine right to rule, his sovereignty. We can agree with his sovereignty in an arbitrary mental kind of way. As if we're just collecting pieces of trivia. Some little piece of academia, the order of the planets in our solar system. Who signed the Declaration of Independence first? How many actors have ever played Batman on screen? 
But God isn't just some piece of trivia. Right? We don't just collect little pieces about God and file him away for, for parties. That's why it's so important. Even if you grew up in church, maybe especially if you grew up in church, it is so important that we connect the dots between his attributes and his attitudes, right? his qualities and his character. He's a person. I think it would be easy for us to read Esther chapter 1 and only see how it pokes fun at the foolish arrogance of pride. But with just a little bit of effort, I think we could push through a little deeper and we could learn how to celebrate that our God controls all things. That is a doctrine worth celebrating, not just filing. Let's go through just a couple of examples, and maybe we'll see how that plays out. All right, just quickly. Look, at, look back at verse 1. Verse chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, if we just stopped there, you don't have to know much about the ancient world or, or, or even like modern-day geography, really, to recognize the space between India and Ethiopia is just a fraction of the landmass of our planet, right? And King Ahasuerus, like most kings, he only reigned over that chunk of ground because somebody's army conquered it some time ago and he inherited the throne. That's how kings work. We could actually pause right there with no more information and celebrate the contrast between this king and our king. Right? Our God doesn't just reign over some piece of ground on one measly planet. Our God reigns over all reality in the universe, right? The physical and the spiritual. The past, the present, the future. He is reigning over all of it simultaneously. And he doesn't just reign it because he was given the throne. He reigns over all reality because he created all reality. And he sustains all reality with nothing more than the power of his will. He thinks it and it's real. We can celebrate that our God, right? Our God is the reigning, undisputed, uncontested, undefeated king of the universe. That's just one way that we can celebrate God's sovereignty. It takes a little bit of time and intention, but it's so worth it. Let's do one more. Look at, look at verse 12. Down at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged. And anger burned within him. If our God limits, orders, controls, and knows all things, then he has never lashed out in frustration or disappointment. He's not that kind of dad. He's not that kind of king. So we never have to be afraid that we're going to catch him in a bad mood. We never have to be afraid that he woke up late 
And he's scrambling to get things in order. We never have to wonder if he's disappointed and dealing with his own demons. We can rest knowing that our God has never been surprised or disappointed or frustrated one day in his entire existence. And so our God is a profoundly happy God. Hallelujah. If that's not something to celebrate, I don't know what is. Our God smiles constantly. Last one, verse 22. It's the last verse. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script and to every people in their own language. Let every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The irony, the king Ahasuerus can't even obey his own decree to be master of his own household. Right? Again, it serves as a contrast. We can celebrate. That's not like our God. Our God is always aligning his purposes with his plans and power. Right? His commands are always advancing his purposes. And since his purposes will always be accomplished, we can be confident. We'll always have the power necessary to do his commands, and we have a role to play in accomplishing his purposes. Friends, we can celebrate that our God is very, very good at being God. I think we need as much help as we can possibly get to practice humility. Our arrogance, our entitlement, it's pervasive. We're born with it, and it's tough to root out. One of the ways that we can practice humility is by consistently celebrating. Our God is very, very good at being God. Let's be happy about that today. Would you join me in praying? Father God, we love you. We love that you are a God who knows what he's doing, who has it planned from eternity past. Your plans will never be frustrated. We celebrate today your finished work on the cross, and we celebrate that you are good at being God. We are happy that you are our God. We love you. Amen.